0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kira Miller. This is a story about how you make something that sits right at the heart of America, more fair and just. It's about one woman's attempt to literally redesign the world around her. But the story winds around in funny ways, as most stories do. So, let's start in Hollywood, early 1970s.
1: Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold,
0: like their mother.
1: You know, as a latchkey kid, I'd come home and after school at 3.15 and watch a few television shows before my mother came home and my, and my dad came home from work. And the Brady Bunch was one of those shows, and the father, Mike Brady, was an architect.
0: That's Tony Griffin, who herself became an architect and who went on to found the firm Urban American City.
1: I drew all the time as a child, and I just thought it was really cool that his job was drawing. He had this office and this special table and these colored pencils. And so I thought that was pretty cool. And he drew these renderings of buildings. the one day when the lady met fellow, and they knew that it was much more than a hunt.
0: What Mike Brady did, as it turned out, was at the time almost solely the domain of white men. But Tony Griffin didn't know that. She did know that certain buildings in Chicago, where she lived, captivated her. When she ended up in a college prep school that happened to teach drafting, one teacher noticed
1: she was very good. And he would enter me in these kind of science and technology citywide uh, competitions that I would win. And he and a guidance counselor uh, kind of pointed me towards architecture I went the summer between my junior and senior year to the University of Notre Dame for um, architecture program for high school students, and then the rest is history. So it's a career that I had my sights on from the age of 14.
0: Tony Griffin is also now a professor of urban planning and the director of the Just City Lab at Harvard Graduate School of Design, where she does, as the name would suggest, search for ways that design can make cities more equitable and nearly a year after downtowns erupted in protest after the killing of George Floyd and over issues of racial injustice, and after a year in which cities, particularly low-income residents, became some of the people hardest hit by the pandemic, the question that Griffin has been asking for a long time of how you can design a city to bring us together, well, it feels more important than ever.
1: There are places, geographies, people, businesses, and entities that were struggling before the shutdown. And the shutdown has created a devastating blow to them financially, uh, their economic stability, and their quality of life.
0: Architecture and urban planning may not seem quite up to the task of creating equity in cities. And to be fair, they're only a couple of tools in the toolbox. But you could argue that design helped create racial inequity, wealth gaps, opportunity gaps. And if design could pull us apart, maybe its role in the solution is being underestimated. Griffin has seen in her own life what segregation
1: by design means. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, which is, as probably most people know, uh, is a fairly pronounced segregated city south side of Chicago is predominantly African-American and over the last few decades also has a fairly large Latinx population. The north side of the city is predominantly white. And when you begin to look at socioeconomic demographics of the two parts of town, they're also fairly stark. Um, the Brookings Institute has been doing some really interesting research on the devaluation of home values between Black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods when you compare the same lot and the same type of home. Hmm. Today in Chicago, a home that is on the South Side uh, in a Black neighborhood is devalued at $36,000 less than the exact same home on the North Side in a comparable neighborhood to a comparable house. All that, but, you know, as a kid, I know none of that. Right. I just know everything I needed was on the South side. And as a kid, you know, the city is big. So everywhere I went in my orbit, you know, I saw Black folks. That was completely normal to me. Most of my classmates, well, actually, after the second grade, the majority of my classmates were Black. I had Black teachers. It wasn't until I went to the University of Notre Dame as an undergrad that I was in a space where I was not the majority. Hmm. And I entered a profession where I was the minority, which is still the case today. There are only 500 Black women who've ever been licensed as a registered architect in the United States. And there's less than 2% Black architects, male or female, of the about 116,000 in the United States. So, you know, coming from an environment where you are comfortable in your skin and your being and who you are, and then going into an environment where you're kind of othered either directly or indirectly had some effect on me. Although, you know, I performed well in school. I performed well in my first job at Skidmore Wings in Merrill. It wasn't until I started doing urban design and planning work with an SOM in Chicago Uh, that I began to have and formulate more questions about why the city was the way it was. When you um, talked
0: about how you worked overseas, like you um, did some design for for clients overseas and then you did stuff back in the U.S. and you started to see these differences and like where's the commerce? What kind of housing is being built? What kind of services are being offered? That type of thing. Um, What did you eventually answer yourself about like, What's going on here?
1: Well, the more I immersed myself in knowledge about the history of development of cities, the more I began to understand there were a series of very intentional policies and practices dating back to the early parts, the early decades of the last century that were written with intentional exclusion, extraction, and discrimination at mind. When we think about some of our early housing and housing finance acts, which were written intentionally to not be offered to African-Americans. When we think about some of the policies even coming out of the World War that were providing home loans and education loans to returning veterans, some of those acts were not written to include African-Americans. Real estate sectors wrote restrictive covenants and established practices of blockbusting, which were designed to create racial tension and devalue spaces where Black people were. So it's interesting that I didn't learn that uh, in my undergraduate degree, Mm -hmm. but that in years into practice, by taking a break and going off to Harvard to do a Loeb Fellowship, I began to understand, as I think anyone who's working in cities must understand, the legacy of intentional policy and practice, which was designed to extract, exclude, discriminate, and devalue spaces where Black people were.
0: Um, can you give an example of a city that you've worked in where you can um, just explain how there were laws, practices put into place that you know created this kind of Uh, segregation. You talked about like how uh, houses can be worth very different amounts in like whiter and blacker parts of Chicago. But like, is there something where you can say, here's a city I worked in it? And and, and, no, here's a story of what then happened.
1: Every city has this history. (laughs) Every major U.S. city has this history. If you are in a city where you find that Black folks live on one side of town and white folks live on another. The reason that exists is because of some of these policies I just mentioned. You know, Chicago, when Blacks migrated from the South, coming out of the agricultural fields post-slavery to the North to begin to participate and look for work and income in the industrial economy they migrated to Northern and Midwestern states. For Chicago, you're coming out of Arkansas and Mississippi. You're coming into a part of Chicago that was known as the black belts. So in this period between 1910 and the 1940s, concentrated black folks in a particular part in the city due to some of these racial covenants and restrictions, but it also happened to be the place where Black people thrive. The first Black insurance company, the first Black bank, the first Black newspaper, were started in the Black Belt, later known as Black Metropolis, which some would say is analogous to Harlem at the same time. This same neighborhood also then saw another wave of extractive and devaluation practices that concentrated some of the city's notorious public housing sites began to remove or disinvest in the infrastructures that kept them as viable neighborhoods and overlaid onto it a series of urban renewal projects like for highways, for example, that began to dismantle and obliterate the neighborhood such that today that sort of form of developmental mutilation has left these neighborhoods with some of the highest concentrations of vacant land as well as some of the other vulnerabilities that you might imagine go along with that, like poverty and unemployment. And of course, these are now some of the neighborhoods that have been hard hit by not only the health pandemic, but where you might also see significant levels of violence happening, uh, whether that's environmental violence or, or human kind of violence. Ironically, though, this is the neighborhood, I shouldn't say ironically, I should say Where we're optimistic is this is now also the set of neighborhoods where the former president, uh, President Obama, and the First Lady have chosen to put their presidential center serving as a catalyst for reinvesting in exactly these types of neighborhoods that have these urban histories and legacies that still have strong Uh, neighborhood bones and infrastructure, strong families, youth and assets that should signal these are the types of places that we have to focus and direct not only private capital to, but also public capital to in our cities.
0: One of the things you argue is that design can be this tool to help repair um, injustice. Can you give me an example of a project uh, it could be that you've worked on, it could, it, you don't have to have worked on them, but uh, projects where you feel like it did move the needle towards making a city more just. Like, you know, maybe something people will recognize is like, oh, I know that from my travels or from the city I live
1: in. I think it operates on different scales. So the first example I'll give is of a public space, and it's one of my favorite public spaces. It happens to be in Chicago, and it's in Millennium Park, and it's Crown Fountain, It is a public space. It's a very shallow field of water that has intermittent sort of jets of water that pop up. And it's anchored by two very large digital towers. Now, as I said before, Chicago is a very segregated city. Downtown is, in fact, really one of the few neighborhoods where you will see people of different ethnicities, ages, backgrounds, etc it 's you know the hub of where people work and shop mm-hmm. and entertainment right. so what I love about this space is because of how it 's designed and it has these water jets, anytime you go there there 's always a sea of kids playing in it, and it 's a sea of kids of all races, right, mm-hmm. which doesn 't typically happen in an elementary school or in their neighborhood, so that alone. Is just really beautiful to see. But I, I think one of the design moves, whether this was an intention or not, but I feel like it is an outcome of the design, is that these massive digital towers display digital images of everyday Chicagoans. And when I say everyday Chicagoans, I mean it is all sorts of faces of with all sorts of beauty and scars and shapes and colors and ages. It is everyday folk, right? It is not models. And so then at intermittent periods, water shoots out of the person's mouth, which then creates another kind of water spectacle. (laughs) But what I love about it in a city that is so segregated is that I see myself represented in this massive tower. And to me, we need environmental clues and cues for how I know if I belong, and if I'm welcome, and if I'm to be accepted, and that I'm also to act in a way that I embrace welcome, inclusion, and belonging. Well, I was
0: gonna say, it also is probably nice that it's um, a clue to kids, right, of all types, who, as you were saying, may live a life where they mostly see people who look like them, that actually there are kids of all types out there, right? And here they are playing right next to you.
1: Right. So, you know, hatred, racism, those things are all learned, right? And so part of, you know, our challenges and because of the way the American landscape has been designed through segregation, You know, part of this stems from we're not in proximity to one another, so we don't know one another. Right. Right? We know narratives about each other, but we don't know one another. Mm -hmm. Now what I didn't say, which also happens, is that on the sidelines as parents are watching, you then see the adults in conversation with people they don't know, right? Because you begin to sort of see your kid is playing with someone and they're standing Mm -hmm. kind of proximate to your kid. So all of a sudden, you know, you're having a conversation outside of your group, which is also just not something that happens on the everyday. So the spaces created moments for engagement and dialogue with people who are different from you.
0: I want to ask you about housing and kind of how it ties into making a city more just. Because when I think about housing one of the big issues, it seems like, is that our towns are very, very segregated. So you've got people who feel strongly that there should be racial equity. But then at night, they go back to their homes or they go to their schools and their towns, which often do not really intersect with people who are different from them. Um, How do you think about that when you consider, you know, how do we change the city and make it
1: a more equal place? Well, you know, what set up segregation in cities is a lot about what we've talked about, right? But people also have choice and the ability to choose where they live. Some people are intentional about being in spaces of diversity. And I think that's really important. And I think there are also people who make choices to not be. So, you know, some of this is public policy, which makes sure we are not doing things that further and deepen harmful segregation practices. And then there are things that I think are much more about our interpersonal choices, about how we educate ourselves to value difference. And the quality that brings to your life or the life of your children and how we're all intentional about making choices that value that.
0: I want to come back a little bit to the beginning of our conversation. Um, you talked about growing up in Chicago and and a little bit about uh, the migration into cities like Chicago, northern cities from the South that happened in like the early part of the 1900s, mid 1900s. Um, the uh, columnist Charles Blow has noted that in a lot of ways, some of that migration is reversing. Um, so, like if you look back at the 2010 census. The percentage of African Americans living in the South was the highest it's been in something like 50 years. Stepping back, since you look at many, many different cities, do you see something big happening in terms of the shift in where people live?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I was just on a call recently where we were reminded that there's currently a black exodus out of Chicago. Mm. And that just over the last 15 years, I think nearly 250,000 African-Americans have left the south side of the city. So it is a trend. Part of that is because of the decades of disinvestment that those households and families have had to endure in their part of the segregated city. And what do you think, how will that change America? Like what will be the
0: net effect of that of that shift?
1: Well, I think the one that we just witnessed, perhaps, is the 2020 election Mm -hmm. and the swing of some pretty pivotal southern states, Georgia in particular, which is changing voting blocks and how civic participation is showing up and weighing in on the representation of policy and elected officials in some of these historically red states. Toni Griffin is a professor in the practice
0: of urban planning. She's a director of the Just City Lab at Harvard Graduate School of Design and is the founder of Urban American City. Tony, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: We've got a lot more about Tony's quest for a more just city at our website innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show: Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hanna Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.